and it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast over at investinghope.com or iTunes or Google Play or Podbeam or own Alexa. Yeah, that's right. Amazon. You can hear us over there as well. And, and so we are grateful that you are listening, regardless of how you find yourself right now, whether that be driving home or mowing the, lo- mowing the yard, whatever that looks like for you. We, we thank you for tuning in. I was out last week. Last week was fall break. My kids are homeschooled, but we still, uh, you know, looked at last week as fall break and, and you know, let, allowed them not to have class. And, uh, and we did, you know, we kind of did some family things. We didn't go anywhere, but but we stayed around, and so that was that was a fun time. Uh, but man, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. Uh, me missing the show last week. A lot has happened here in the state, and we are just a couple weeks from election, November third. So today we're going to talk a lot about the election. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some news that is coming out, some polls that that are coming out. I don't typically on this show go deep into. And into that side of it, but I will take one segment to kind of look at the polls. There's a great article over at National Review interviewing uh, a, a great up-and-coming pollster that, that predicted the election correctly four years ago, uh, and people are starting to notice uh, the predictions coming out uh, as of late as well. So we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to uh, talk about Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the, really the lack of fireworks when it comes to when it came to her Senate hearings and the Judiciary Commute, Committee and her uh, they're working through the weekend to see that she would be confirmed. And it looks like they have the votes. Uh, Mitt Romney's come out and said he's going to vote in the affirmative. And, and if he's come out and said that, I, I, I'm pretty confident they have the votes they need uh, to to put her in. And then and especially to do that before Election Day. So they're going to work, work through the weekend. Uh, and, and do that. But right now, I want to start with looking at some, some news that has come out of Tennessee. So this is an article over at the New York Times talking about Tennessee, and it's from uh, last week, October 14th. Uh, but here's what it says. A federal judge on Wednesday struck down a Tennessee law that required women to wait 48 hours after visiting a clinic to have an abortion, finding that it placed an undue burden on women, particularly low-income women, and uh, by requiring them to travel to a health center twice for the procedure. The judge, Bernard Friedman, also said the waiting period was uh, gratuitously demeaning to women who have decided to have an abortion. So uh, right there with that statement and multiple statements that I'll be uh, citing here in a second, you will see that this judge clearly has an agenda and a narrative that he is pushing. Uh, He goes further, defendant's suggestion that women are overly emotional and must be required to cool off or calm down before having a medical procedure they have decided they want to have and that they are constitutionally entitled to have is highly insulting and paternalistic and all the more so given that no such waiting periods apply to men, he wrote. Uh, Now, that's interesting because if, if you tore your ACL and went to the doctor today, there's a good chance they may not repair it today. You know, if you were having back pain, and, and I, know, I know a lot of people that have had back pain, and, and the doctor says, I recommend a surgery. I recommend you doing something about this. You don't have to get it done right then in that moment, do you? No, you don't, because those are, those are decisions that are, that are long-lasting. And so when we talk about a 48-hour waiting period when it comes to getting an abortion, we, we do that because that's a decision that lasts forever. 
Now, why is that? It's a decision that lasts forever because a successful abortion ends the life of a human being, period. Now, the judge on his high horse, he didn't want to talk about that, but that's the truth of the matter. And so the reason for the 48-hour waiting period is because that decision is made at a split second, and that decision will change the life of that mom and the life of that baby forever, and the life of the dad involved as well. The ruling was significant, as it was the first by uh, a federal court to strike down a waiting period since 1992 U.S. Supreme Court decision upheld a 24-hour waiting period in Pennsylvania, according to the Center for Reproductive Rights, which represented the Tennessee clinics and sued to stop the law. And although it is unlikely to have an immediate effect in other states, it sets a precedent for other federal courts to cite when reviewing similar laws. Now, this again goes back to the importance of uh, judge, judge appointees, right? So, so what we've seen over the last four years is we've seen President Trump appoint Hundreds of federal judges, hundreds of them. This is why it's important. This is why four years ago, some people said, look, if you don't like Donald Trump, at least vote for him because of the judges that he's going to be able to appoint, whether it be Supreme Court or at a federal level across the country. And, and, and I'll just be honest. The, the benefits of that have been astronomical. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh now Amy Coney Barrett, and the hundreds of federal judges that have been appointed across this country. And we need to think about that moving forward as well. The article continues, Waiting periods are one of a number of abortion restrictions that could ultimately be ruled upon by the Supreme Court, which could tip further to the right if President Trump's latest nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, is confirmed, as expected by the U.S. Senate. Uh, Autumn Katz, senior counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights, says she hoped the decision, quote, serves as a wake-up call to lawmakers trying to interfere with patients' personal medical decisions, end quote. Here we go with a patient's personal medical decisions. Now, now they don't talk about pa- patients' personal medical decisions or, or religious freedom when they're trying to force the little sisters of the poor to, to pay for abortions. They don't talk about pregnancy centers' rights and freedoms in California when they're trying to force them to uh, not only encourage but refer for abortion. They're, they're not talking about freedom of religion when they're forcing churches' insurance plans to pay for abortions or Christian schools. Or, or when they're, you know, see, see, so this is where none of this makes sense to me. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And, and, and the fact remains. The one life they're not taking into consideration is the life of the unborn baby. That is a life. Now, they can say all they want to, that it's a blob or it's a, a, a tissue or whatever. It is a life. Period. We know that. Science knows that. Everyone we put our eyes on in this world knows that. Why? Because every person you come in contact with is proof of life in the womb. Because every person you come in contact with didn't just magically appear. They grew inside of a womb. They were given a chance at life. And now these folks would fight with everything they have to end the life of others, innocent human beings. They go further here. Patients do not need politicians to dictate their decision-making process, she said. This law is demeaning and actually harms patients by imposing unnecessary costs and pushing abort, abortion later in pregnancy. No, it doesn't. You know what it harms? You know who it harms? The abortion industry. That's who it harms. Why does it harm them? Because if someone has to wait 48 hours, they may decide within that 48-hour waiting period, I don't want to have an abortion. 
I don't want to go through with this. I want to have my baby. And if they make that decision, well, oh no, the budget lines, the budgets of these abortion lobbies and these abor- the abortion industry start to fall. They hurt. They need that money. That's where they are able to do everything. The reason Planned Parenthood can give millions to politicians is because they provide hundreds of thousands of abortions every year. Like, do you see that? This isn't a detriment to a female. This isn't a detriment to women. This is a detriment to the abortion industry. It isn't about helping women. It isn't about empowering women. If it was, they would talk about the amount of women that are being aborted every day. You see, but it's not about empowering women. It's not about feminism. It's about the amount of money that they can make on abortion. Now, they can wrap it in a pretty package all they want. They can say this is about women's power and, and, and empowerment and, and all of these things to allow women to follow their dreams. Or like Stevie Nicks said over the weekend, that had she not had an abortion, we wouldn't have gotten all of her great music. You see, they believe the lie. They believe the lie that you can't have your baby and your dreams, that they're in, they're in a fight against each other, and you're going to have to pick one. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Please understand that. And so when you hear folks say, oh, that, that 48-hour waiting period and these abortion restrictions are undue burden on women. No, no, it's not. It's not. You're making a decision that is going to change your life forever and will take the life of another human forever. Excuse me for saying you should wait 48 hours to make that decision. Have we lost our mind? Yeah, apparently so. We live in a world where out of one side of the mouth, they say there is no gender. Be who you want to be. Just because you're born with certain parts doesn't mean you're a woman or a man. Pick your gender. There is no gender. And out of the other side of their mouth, they say that that women have a right. Women's choice and women's suffrage and all of these women things. Well, you can't have both of those. Either gender doesn't matter or it does. Either the vulnerable matter or they don't. You can't pick and choose here. I get so frustrated. I get so frustrated when I hear people say, oh, well, the pro-life movement is just for babies before they're born, but they don't care about them after they're born. Well, first off, that's a lie. It's untrue. Second, the pro-choice movement, the pro-abortion movement, don't care about babies in the womb. No one wants to talk about that. They care nothing about a baby growing inside of the womb. Nothing. And see, as they, as they seek to dehumanize the baby in the womb, which is what our culture has been successful at, by dehumanizing the baby in the womb, it allows for people to make these arguments. It allows for people to, to make these arguments and not even talk about the life that is forever being ended via abortion. You see, one thing the New York Times isn't talking about in this article is the life that's forever being ended via abortion. That's the frustrating part with me. The article goes further. The Tennessee Attorney General's Office, uh, which defended the state's waiting period in court, said it was considering an appeal. They better appeal it. And if they don't, we need to, we need to hold them accountable at the election. We must hold them accountable. 
Appeal it, appeal it, appeal it, appeal it. End of story. This is why conservatives run for office. This is why they go around all the time saying, vote for me, we'll get you to the judges. Vote for me, we'll defund Planned Parenthood. Vote for me, we're going to be pro-life. Vote for me, we're going to have restrictions on abortion. Well, then you better fight it when the, when the rubber meets the road and we get into the courts. I need you to fight it. So yes, you should appeal it. The Attorney General goes further. We are disappointed in the ruling that comes a full year after the trial and five years after the law was passed by our elected representatives. We are evaluating next steps, including appealing the order. Tennessee Right to Life, an advocacy group opposed to abortion, condemned the decision and said it was confident it would be reversed on appeal. They go further. Not only is this a decision, a slap at Tennessee's abortion vulnerable women, it is an affront to Tennessee voters who passed the 2014 Constitutional Amendment in which allowing a short waiting period was a key factor, Brian Harris, the president of Tennessee Right to Life, said. He goes further, Our organization remains committed to seeing a similar statute drafted and enforced during the next legislative session. Currently, about half of the states in the country have waiting periods on the books. The center said it was also challenging waiting periods in Arizona, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. Waiting periods have been struck down before, but in state courts. A state court in Iowa struck down a waiting period in 2018, as did the Tennessee Supreme Court in 2000, according to Elizabeth Nash, an expert at the Guttmacher Institute, which tracks abortion statistics. Conservative lawmakers have already chipped away at abortion access, reducing it substantially in a number of Republican-led states over the past decade. Anti-abortion activists say they are closer than ever to their long-held goal of reversing Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision that extended federal protections to abortion. Now, notice in that paragraph how they, de- how they phrased pro-lifers. Notice they didn't say pro-life. What did they say? They said anti-abortion activist. Now, look, I'm not apologizing for being anti-abortion. I am anti-abortion, and you can call me an anti-abortion activist. But here's what they won't do. They won't say that the other side is pro-abortion. Why? Because that sounds callous. And that's going to hurt their agenda and hurt their narrative. And we don't want to do that. So we're going to call them, they're just for choice. They're for choice and women's empowerment. And who's not for choice and who's not for women's empowerment? You see how how they do this? You see how they change the language? And in changing the language, they change the narrative. And, And in changing the narrative, they control what direction this goes in. The decision striking down Tennessee's law was the second victory for abortion right advocates this week. It came one day after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit struck down a Texas measure that would have banned the most common abortion procedure after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The law had not gone into effect, and it was not clear yet if Texas planned to appeal the ruling. And so that's where we are, folks. That's where we are. Of course, the the article goes further. Uh, That that particular judge that, that made this ruling has an agenda and has a narrative that he's pushing. He, he, he is pro-abortion. And they will do everything they can to fight for the right to end someone else's life. That is what a pro-abortion is. It isn't about women's empowerment. It isn't about women's health. It is about the right to end the life of a human being. That is what they're fighting for. That is what they spend their dollars on. That is what they spend their time on. Ending the life of another human. Take that for what it is. We'll be back. I'm singing out to the hidden Waiting for the fruit that the hands have sown Did you know there's a promise You'll get more than what you bargained for And this is for the lonely The ones that are loved and the ones that are lost I know your heart may be hurting 
Let's keep dancing till the day is done. Because it'll be alright. So if you couldn't tell, I was a little bit frustrated in that first segment. And the reason is, is because we have put so much power, so much power in the courts. This is why we get all bent out of shape when, uh, when a Supreme Court justice retires or passes away. Because they, we have given them a ridiculous amount of power. And in the same way, we, we see that with federal judges across the country. And so people get upset when you have an originalist. The, the left and liberals get upset when you have an originalist like Amy Coney Barrett. And instead of celebrating truly what you see with Amy Coney Barrett, women, women's empowerment. I mean, here's a mother of seven that, that is about to sit on the, the most prestigious court in the world. And as a mother of seven, went to some of the best colleges, had professors, even, even liberal professors that disagree with her on everything, come out and say, she's brilliant. They'd be crazy not to affirm her, confirm her. And instead of taking that as a moment of celebration, and, and, and truly celebrating women, this is how you know the, the narrative and the agenda. Look, when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, what did you see? You saw people on the left and the right celebrating her life. You saw people on the left and the right saying how, how, what a great jurist she was. Now, now, that doesn't mean that we agreed with her points. It doesn't mean that we agree with the way she viewed the Constitution. But what it meant was we can recognize that you had a woman that, that fought really hard to get to where she was, and she, and she did it well. She was best friends with Antonin Scalia, even though they saw the world through very different lenses. But with Amy Coney Barrett, you don't have that same bipartisan support. Why is that? Because they believe in women's empowerment when it's a woman that agrees with them. But far be it for that woman to be independently minded and think for herself. And, and so true feminism would look at Amy Coney Barrett and say, good for you. You got your baby and your dreams. Applauds to you. But instead, they look at Amy Coney Barrett and they say, uh, she's, she just doesn't know what she's doing. She's allowed the patriarchy and she's allowed men to kind of influence her. And, and, and we don't even really know if we agree with the, the two uh, kids of color that she adopted. We don't know if that was a good path for her since she's white. So you see, they, they seek to tear her down. It's the same thing when they say we, we, need a, we can't wait to get a, a first female president. But then when you have females like Nikki Haley or, uh, or the governor of South Dakota or other females seek to run for office but do it from a conservative standpoint, they are thrown to the wayside, or like a Sarah Palin or somebody like that. Because why? Because they are females, but they believe differently than what the culture would want them to. So they're not one of us. We don't celebrate that type of women empowerment. We don't celebrate that type of success. Why? Because they see the world differently than we do. See how nonsensical that is? And we saw some of that last week in the hearings with Amy Coney Barrett. And, and there's an article over at National Review that talks about this. And the title of the article is, Amy Barrett is an antidote to our culture of contempt. And it starts with this, quote, Dude, I want you to punch Donald, I want to punch Donald Trump in the face, end quote. That is what was said during Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings 
by Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey as he quoted a man who approached him at a town hall. And, and thankfully, Senator Booker responded, dude, that's a felony. Good for him. Fighting against our crazed political culture of anger, con- contempt, and even violence. Now, I don't agree with Cory Booker on a lot of things, but I agree as he went on to say that we need, quote, a revival of civic grace. He said, quote, somewhere along the line, there's going to be a moment. It's coming. I think it's long past that there is to be acts of heroism uh, when it comes to extending grace. Now, that was his pitch to Republicans to hold off on a vote of Amy Coney Barrett, largely because I think Barrett may be the best thing that has happened to American politics in a long time. I disagree. Uh, Washington needs her. America needs her. She embodies grace in a lot of ways in her public witness. Listening to her in some of the exchanges was a civics lesson when it wasn't insane to borrow the word of Peggy Noonan, Pulitzer Prize winner, speechwriter for Ronald Reagan about the state of the nation's capital today. And we do mean insane. I'd walk away from the hearings, come back, and find a senator asking about whether Barrett had ever sexually harassed someone. What? Where did that come from? I had flashbacks to when Democrats threw the kitchen sink at Brett Kavanaugh. One accusation was one thing, but then it seemed like they were ready to pull women off the street to make accusations against, against him. Booker's comments were an unexpected turn in the hearings, which were dehumanizing as they tend to be. Amy Barrett having to sit with a face mask while she was listening to herself be attacked as a puppet of Donald Trump understood to be the greatest threat to democracy there is or ever was by those suggesting as much. It did liberate her from having to smile through it all, at least. Previously, while opining or opening with what seemed to be a sincere, kind moment about the Barrett family, Diane Feinstein quickly, creepily jumped to abortion. Even a Republican senator in one of those over-the-top performances, these kind of hearings unfortunately have a reputation for cruelly and unnecessarily brought up uh, abhorrent social media attacks on Barrett and her husband for adopting two children from Haiti. Last year, Arthur Brooks diagnosed what's ailing American politics. America is addicted to political contempt. While most of us hate what it is doing to our country and worry about how contempt coarsens uh, our culture over the long term, many of us still compulsively consume the ideological equivalent of meth from elected officials, academics, entertainers, and some of the news media. Millions actively indulge their habit by participating in the cycle of contempt in the way they treat others, especially on social media. We wish our national debates were nutritious and substantive, but, but we have an insatiable craving for insults to the other side. As much as we know, we should ignore the nasty columnists, turn off the TV loudmouth, and stop checking our Twitter feeds. We indulge our guilty urge to listen as our biases are confirmed that the other guys are not just wrong, but stupid and evil. Does that sound familiar? Contempt, Brooks writes, is impractical and bad for a country dependent on people working together in politics, communities, and the economy. Unless we hope to become a one-party state, we cannot, afford to con- we cannot afford contempt for our fellow Americans who simply disagree with us. And, and that's where we are. Do you know why the founders put in the election process the way they did? Do you know why this whole idea came to be and came to be one of the greatest ideas this world has ever seen? It's because our election process, the politics of it all, allows for us to have civil war without fighting in the streets. Does that make sense to you? It allows for us at election time, every two years, every four years, to to voice our opinions, to go to the voting box, to pull the lever, to check the box, to, to bubble in the mark, whatever it looks like. It allows for us to do that. 
and then allows for us to go sit in the football stands on a football Saturday or a Friday night in high school uh, football and sit next to people that would disagree with us on every issue. You see, the, the American ideal, the American idea allows for that to happen. For us to go vote for Donald Trump or go vote for Joe Biden and then go to church with someone that voted differently than us. It allows for us to go vote for Joe Biden or go vote for Donald Trump and then go to a restaurant where people around us may think differently. It allows us to live in communities or where people may think differently. But unfortunately, we've gotten to a place where there is no objectivity. There is no willingness to have conversations, to disagree. I'm even seeing this within my own family. We haven't had a Thanksgiving get-together or a Christmas get-together with my uh, family in a long time. Now, why is that? It's because they're so polarized on the political issues of the day. We have some that are ultra-conservative, some that are ultra-liberal, and they refuse to come together to break bread because we voted a certain way. Think about that. My family's not the only one. And that's what we saw with Amy Coney Barrett. That's what we see every day in Washington, D.C. That's what we're seeing across this country is as people are trying to sit down and, and eat at a restaurant and they're being shouted at and yelled at in their face. Simply because they refuse to to put a hand up in the air or they refuse to take down their Trump flag. Folks, we got to be better than this. We can disagree. We can disagree aggressively. But my goodness, if we don't get to a place where we're willing to sit down with each other and put those disagreements on the shelf and enjoy a football game, enjoy a barbecue, enjoy fill in the blank, then we're not going to sustain this. We'll talk more when we come back. When the storms keep raging on, I close my eyes because that's the way I can hear your voice. And I shut my mind from all the troubles that just may come. And I trust your word because that's the way I keep holding on and on. But as long as the sun rises, I'll keep on running, running. So as we continue the conversation today, if you are a political nerd and you like to get in the weeds of polls and, and look at kind of try to predict, th this is always the time for me every, every four years as we get inch ever so closely to the election is where I, I'm trying to figure out what, what does it mean? What does it mean right now as we see across the country, especially here in the state of Tennessee, especially here in East Tennessee, every, it's early voting right now and everywhere you go, there's a long line. So I'm looking at that. I'm trying to analyze that. Does that mean that there's Republicans are fired up? Does that mean that Democrats are fired up? Does that mean the independents are fired up? Who, who is benefiting from the large turnout in early voting? Uh, you know, we look across the country and we say that. Then we get in deeper into the weeds and we say, well, well, what does this mean? You know, we look at Michigan and we look at Pennsylvania, we look at Florida, and we see that Republicans have registered a ton of voters, more than Democrats, over the past year or so. Does that mean that that... They, they think they're positioning themselves to win states like Florida, states that the president needs to win in order to win the election. I mean, that, that's, that's a deciding state every four years. You know, we have DeSantis is the governor of Florida, and, and he was not picked to win. 
He was eight points down, I think, in the poll right before the election and then ended up winning by two points. And so we, we try to analyze all this and try to figure it out. Well, there's a, there's a pollster that, that I think doesn't get enough credit. And, and he actually picked the, uh, their polls were spot on when it came to the election four years ago. So while everybody's watching their, their TV screens four years ago and, and, and you know, their, their jaws were dropping as they were starting to, to get an understanding, Trump's going to win this. Hillary's losing. This pollster already predicted that. And so, and so we there did an interview with him over at National Review, and I wanted to bring that to your attention because I think it's important that we kind of look at these things moving, you know, we're two weeks out, and so what, is these, what do these things mean? The upstart Trafalgar group doesn't see 2020 the same way everyone else does. The polling uh, on the website, Real Clear Politics, showed the margin in polls led by Joe Biden in a blue font and the ones led by Donald Trump in red. For a while, the battleground states have tended to be uniformly blue, except for polls conducted by the Trafalgar Group. If you are a firm believer only in polling averages, this isn't particularly meaningful. But if you are familiar with Trafalgar's successes in 2016, when, unlike other pollsters, it had Trump leading in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and in 2018, Ron DeSantis winning his gubernatorial race, it is notable. Regardless, it's worth knowing why one pollster is departing from nearly everyone else. To this end, I checked in, uh, the, the author of this article checked in with Robert uh, Kahaley, who is predicting a Trump victory on the latest edition of the Editor's Podcast. You can find that over in the National Review. Uh, and, and so this article is based on that. Kahaley was born in Georgia and got involved in politics going door-to-door as a kid. He started a political consulting firm with some others in the late 90s. Around 2008, he says, they realized that the polling they were getting wasn't very good, so they started doing their own. He says they got good, accurate results in the races they were working. In 2016 primaries, they started putting out some of their own polls. Quote, our polls ended up being the best ones in South Carolina and Georgia, Kahaley said. So we started studying it, what it was that made those so different. Then there was the breakthrough in the 2016 general election. Quote, we ended up having an incredible year. I mean, we, we got Pennsylvania right. We got Michigan right. We had the best poll in five of the battleground states in 2016, and I actually predicted 306 to 232 on the Electoral College. And we went from doing a little bit of polling on the side to that being our primary business in about 24 hours. And since then, that's what we've been doing. Much of Trafalgar's approach focuses on accounting for the so-called social desirability bias. As Kahaley puts it, that's when a respondent gives you, quote, an answer that is designed to make the person asking the question be less judgmental of the person who answers it, end quote. Kahaley notes that this phenomenon showed up as long ago as the 80s in the so-called Bradley effect when the African-American mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, underperformed his polling in a gubernatorial race. It has been a hallmark of the Trump era, as in one reason other pollsters missed the impending victory of Ron DeSantis over Andrew Gillum in the 2018 Florida gubernatorial race. He goes further, I've got to get past what you want to say in public and get to what you really feel, Kahaley says, because what's in your heart is going to be what's on that ballot. And so what he means by that is there are some folks that are getting polled that are afraid to say they support Donald Trump. We know that. We know that without a doubt. That there are people that are afraid to tell a, a, a pollster who they support. We also know that, that many conservatives won't even answer a pollster because they don't trust them. So in order to get true data, you have to work at it. You have to work hard at it. 
The article goes further. There are a number of methodological uh, differences in how Trafalgar goes about its work. One is the number of questions on its surveys. Kahaley says this, I don't believe in long questionnaires. I think when you're calling up a mom or dad on a school night and they're trying to get the kids dinner and get them to bed and that phone rings at seven o'clock and they're supposed to stop what they're doing and take up to a 25 to 30 question poll, no way. Why does that matter? You end up disproportionately representing the people who will like to talk about politics, like me. So if I get a phone call from a pollster, guess what I do? I spend a lot of time with them. I walk outside. I talk to them. When they say it's just a yes or no answer, what do I do? I don't give them yes or no. I explain my answer. I talk to them about it, and they don't care. But because I'm a political nut, I'm going to spend that 30 minutes with them. Most people are not like that. Most people are not like that. And so what you get is you, you, you end up with, with those long questionnaires. You end up talking with people that like to talk about politics, which is going to skew toward the very, very conservative and the very, very liberal and the very, very bored, Kahaley explains. And the kind of people that win elections are the people in the middle. So I think they miss the people in the middle when they do things that way. According to Kahaley, most polls are more than 25 questions. That's insane. It keeps it between seven and nine. So he keeps it between seven and nine. So respondents can answer in a matter of minutes. Then there is the how questions, how the questions are asked. So uh, Kahaley says, we do not like to do all live calls. This goes back to the social desirability bias. People with opinions that are unpopular don't want to be judged by somebody on the phone that they don't know. If this was always true, it's particularly so now. They've seen all this stuff of people being shamed for their opinion, people losing their jobs. So Trafalgar mixes up how it contacts people and especially wants respondents to feel safe in responding. It says this, we use collection methods of live calls, auto calls, text, emails, and a couple that we call our proprietary digital technology that we don't explain, but it's also digital. The point, he continues, is to really push the anonymous part. This is your anonymous say-so. Another factor is that conservatives are less likely to participate in polls in general. This is what I was just saying. Listen to this number. We see a five to one refusal rate among conservatives. That means you've got to work very hard to get a fair representation of conservatives when you do any kind of survey. Five to one conservatives say, I don't want to talk to you. And they'll hang up. Trafalgar also goes about building its list differently. One thing the firm noticed in its polling in the Georgia and South Carolina primary in 2016, Kaylee says, is people voting who didn't know how to use the touch machines, people showing up who hadn't voted in 15 years. And the article goes further. I'll finish it up on the other side. But, but look, these are important things. You, you see the national polls, but when you really dig deep into those national polls, the question you have to ask yourselves, are they representing the populace as a whole, or did they just get who, they could, who would answer the phone and they're just getting political, political nerds, conservative and liberal, and bored people that just want to talk to somebody? That's a question. We'll be back. Like storytelling with my grandpa. So as we finish up today, I do want to finish up this article real quick about the polls. And, and the reason I want to do that is because I think it's important. And I think many of you, if you're like me, you're, you're trying to get a sense for what does all this mean? Uh, why does it matter? Uh, you know, should we trust national polls? Trafalgar says no, because 
look, and he's right. Presidential elections are won state by state. If it was based on popular vote, the national polls might be might deserve some merit. But it's not. It's electoral college for a reason. So state by state is what we need to look at. And so so the question is, and the question that, that I really wanted to get to is what what does uh Kahaley think? How does he see the twenty twenty race ending? Fundamentally, is a motivation race rather than a persuasion race, which perhaps 1.5% at most of the electorate, electorate undecided in battleground states. The likeliest Trump electoral path to victory involves winning the battlegrounds in North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, and either Michigan or Pennsylvania among the former blue wall states, assuming he doesn't lose states such as Iowa or Ohio. This is Kahaley's breakdown. So this is how this pollster is seeing it. He believes Trump will win North Carolina. That's huge. Democrats are spending a lot of money in North Carolina. They need that to win. Trump needs it to win as well. Kahaley believes Trump will win North Carolina and Florida and discounts Biden's chances in Georgia because the Republican base vote is too big there in Georgia, and the same is true in Texas. As for Arizona, Kahaley says, I think Trump has the lead. I think Republican Senator Martha McSally has some ground to make up. I see her about five points behind Trump, but I think Trump will probably win the state and win it by a couple of points or more. And if he wins it big enough, McSally has a shot. Trump isn't there yet in Pennsylvania, according to Kahaley. Right now, we've got him down in Pennsylvania, he says. I think if it were held today, the undecided would break toward Trump and there'd be some hidden vote. He'd probably win Pennsylvania, but I'm going to give caveat on only Pennsylvania. I believe Pennsylvania to be the number one state that Trump could win and have stolen due to voter fraud. That's another hot take for you. In Michigan, Trafalgar has Trump ahead. I think he wins Michigan, Kahaley says, citing fear of the Democratic economic agenda. Overall, Kahaley sees another Trump win. If it all happened right now, he maintains, my best guess would be an electoral college victory in the high to uh, 270s, low to 280s. There it is. Among pollsters, you heard it from Kahaley first, and perhaps exclusively a position he's been in before. So there you go. Kahaley of the Trafalgar uh, group believes Trump is going to win. That doesn't mean you sit back. I don't know how you want the election to go. I know how I want it to go. And you probably know how I want it to go. I'm not going to say it, but I think you know. I think you know. And so we'll see how it all plays out in a couple weeks. Go vote, get engaged, get involved. It's important. But remember this, regardless of who holds that seat in the Oval Office, we do not put our hope in man. Regardless of who puts that black robe on and walks into the Supreme Court, we do not put our hope in men or women or or nine judges on some uh, court bench. We put our hope in God. And so we, we, we enjoy talking about it. We get fired up about it. But the reality is God's got this. He's in control of this. And we're going to trust in that. That doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. We got a lot to do. And we need to get engaged and we need to get involved and we need to go vote. Go vote. I know the lines are long right now, early voting. Go wait in the line. Put your headphones in. Listen to music. If you don't want to talk to anybody else, listen to a book. Whatever that listen to this podcast, that would make sense. As you're walking in to vote, you just listen to an amazing breakdown and analysis of the election coming up by yours truly. I would highly recommend that. Either way, get engaged. Take the time. Know what's on the ballot. Know who's on the ballot. And go make a vote. It's your right. And you can do whatever you want to with that vote. It's yours. It is yours and yours alone. I pray that the candidates have have earned it. Have they earned your vote? Do do their policy positions earn your vote? Do they? Look at do you know their policy positions? I hope you do. But make them earn your vote. 
Go use it. Go use it appropriately. And, and, and man, in a couple weeks, we'll be coming back. And, and if, if the election is over on election night, which who knows, maybe it will, maybe it won't, then we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks as well. Crazy times. 2020, pandemic, lockdown. UT is back to doing UT dumb stuff in football. And we have a presidential election. I mean, you couldn't have wrote this stuff any better. This is where we are. We'll talk to you next week.